Morning. Good morning. I thought I might Jack carry to the middle for me. All the best preachers have somebody to carry something for them, don't they? <laughs> We've Phil and I have joked before that if we go out preaching, one of us will go with the other and then one of us will go to take a jacket off and we'll dash up to take it off him and put it off. Because that's what all the best preachers have, isn't it? Somebody to take their jacket from them. No, you're not seeing that? You're not seeing that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, good morning. Been three weeks since Christmas. Feels longer, doesn't it? Yeah? Just another 49 to go to the next one. Who's counting down? No, no. Some people do. So this morning, um, if we want to give this morning a title, we'll call it This House Is. And one of the great things about the minister's training that we're doing at the moment on the weekends is hearing uh, from some really good preachers and teachers. And in September, Simon Jarvis, who's on the AOG national leadership team and responsible for the minister's training programme, uh, kicked the Saturday off with some thoughts from Acts 12. And as I listened, I thought, this is something which I think we as a church need to hear as well. And so during the break, I spoke to Vicky and she agreed. And then, so over the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 12. But why did I think it was something, there was something in this passage for us at Junction 10? Well, I'm looking around. Hopefully, um, if you've been with us for a, while, a little while, you'll know that we're looking to build community with Jesus at the centre. Yeah? Are people familiar with that? Yes. Yes. And when listening to Simon speak on Acts 12, I heard him describe a number of characteristics that if we are becoming a community with Jesus at the centre, should apply to us here too. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn to Acts chapter 12, but it will come up on the screen, and I've taken it from the message version this morning. So heading is Peter under heavy guard. That's when King Herod got into his head to go after some of the church members. He murdered James, John's brother. When he saw how much it raised his popularity ratings with the Jews, he arrested Peter. All this during the Passover week, mind you. And had him thrown in jail, putting four squads of soldiers each to guard him. He was planning a public lynching after Passover. All the time that Peter was under heavy guard in the jailhouse, the church prayed for him most strenuously. Then the time came for Herod to bring him out for the kill. That night, even though shackled to two soldiers, one on either side, Peter slept like a baby. Sleeping like a baby wasn't the characteristic, so sorry to disappoint you if you're looking forward to that. Peter slept like a baby and there were guards at the door keeping their eyes on the place. Herod was taking no chances. Suddenly there was an angel at his side and the light flooding the room. The angel shook Peter and got him up. Hurry, the handcuffs fell off his wrists. The angel said, get dressed, put on your shoes. Peter did it. Then grab your coat and let's get out of here. Peter followed him but didn't believe it was really an angel. He thought he was dreaming. Past the first guard and then the second, they came to the iron gate that led into the city. It swung open before them on its own and they were out on the street, free as the breeze. At the first intersection, the angel left him, going his own way. That's when Peter realised it was no dream. I can't believe it. This really happened. The master sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's vicious little production and the spectacle of the Jewish mob was looking forward to. Still shaking his head, amazed, he went to Mary's house. 
the Mary who was John Mark's mother, the door was packed with the house was packed with praying friends. When he knocked on the door to the courtyard, a young woman named Rhoda came to see who it was. But when she recognised his voice, Peter's voice, she was so excited and eager to tell everyone Peter was there that she forgot to open the door and left him standing in the street. It's one of the great little details in the Bible, isn't it? You know, you don't get to know the name of Naaman's servant girl who did great things, but you get to know the name of Rhoda who didn't answer the door. And, and if you think that's a bit odd, well... We had a situation at our house once where Rose, my mother-in-law, came round to the house and knocked on the, knocked on the door, didn't get an answer. So I went round, knocked on the window, saw Jack in the lounge and said, let me in. And he said, no, I'm watching telly. <laughs> so you can knock the door and not, not, not get in, but I, I digress and embarrass my son at the same time. But when she recognised his voice, Peter's voice, she was so excited and eager to tell everyone was there that she forgot to open the door and left him standing in the street. But they wouldn't believe her, dismissing her, dismissing her report. You're crazy, they said. She stuck by her story, insisting. They would still not believe her and said, it must be his angel. All this time, poor Peter was still out in the street, knocking away. (laughs) Finally, they opened up and saw him and went wild. Peter put his hands up and calmed them down. He described how the master had gotten him out of jail, then said, tell James and the brothers what's happened. He left them and went off to another place. At daybreak, the jail was in uproar. Where is Peter? What's happened to Peter? When Herod sent for him and they could neither produce him nor explain why not, he ordered their execution. Off with their heads! Fed up with Judea and the Jews, he went for a vacation in Caesarea. The death of Herod. But things went from bad to worse for Herod. Now people from Tyre and Sidon put him on the warpath. They got Blastus. What a great name. They got Blastus, King Herod's right man, to put in a good word for them and got a delegation together to iron things out. Because they were dependent on Judea for food supplies, they couldn't afford to let this go on too long. On the day set for their meeting, Herod robed in pomposity, took his place on the throne and regaled them with a lot of hot air. The people played their part to the hilt and shouted flatteries, the voice of God, the voice of God. That was the last straw. God had had enough of Herod's arrogance and sent an angel to strike him down. Herod had given God no credit for anything. Down he went, rotten to the core, a maggoty old man. If there ever was one, he died. Meanwhile, the ministry of God's word grew by leaps and bounds. Barnabas and Saul, once they had delivered the relief offering to the church in Jerusalem, went back to Antioch. This time they took John with them, the one they call Mark. So we've read that entire passage there. Um, and I want to pull a few things out of that. Now, a lot of time when people are released from prison, it's not the end of their sentence. They'll usually come out on some sort of license. They've been released and they have to comply with various conditions that have been put in place to protect them or others or to help them avoid further trouble. One of those conditions when you come out of prison is usually to report to your probation officer immediately on release. But sometimes you'll have some people for whom the probation office isn't their first destination. Some will want to celebrate in the pub, just with the one drink, of course, before going anywhere else. While others will want to go home first and maybe have a, a shower and a shave, a change of clothes maybe. But we've read when Peter gets out of prison, what does he do? He doesn't pop into the burning bush for a swift half. He doesn't go home for a wash. We read he went to Mary's house. He didn't go home, he went to Mary's house. Well, why? 
Because Peter knew that is where the people would be. You see, we have to remember back then that there weren't church buildings as such for people to gather in. Church uh, was the collection of believers, and that's still, too, still true today, isn't it? Church isn't the building, it's a collection of people. And Mary's house, or the church that met at Mary's house, was the epicentre of their community. And that's where Peter was heading after getting out of prison. Did you know the church is at the centre of everything? Yes, some of you did. Whether we recognise it today or not, certainly for those early, early Christians, church was central to their lives and it should be central to our lives too. We read in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 20 to 23, um, again from the message, All this energy issues from Christ. God raised him from death and set him on a throne in deep heaven in charge of running the universe. Everything from galaxies to governments, no name and no power exempt from his rule. And not just for the time being, but forever. He is in charge of it all. He has the final word on everything. At the centre of all this, at the centre of all the running the universes and galaxies, governments and so on, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. So Peter went there because it was the epicentre of what was going on. And the other thing to pull out is that with church being central to their lives, despite the fact that they were facing persecution, they were being persecuted, believers were being persecuted by Herod. Herod. Herod? Herod. Members were being arrested, lynched, murdered, but it didn't deter the members from meeting together. There was a desire for the believers to gather, even though it it meant that they perhaps risked persecution. It put them at greater risk of that by meeting together. Is that, is that the mark of the community here at Junction 10, that desire to meet together? So over the next couple of Sundays, I want to look at the characteristics of this early church. And this morning, we'll look at a couple of the, of the biggies. Uh, characteristics which won't come as a surprise to you, I'm sure, but still useful to go back and look at. And then next week, we'll look at the remaining characteristics. So the first one to look at is this. Mary's house was a house of prayer. We read in verse 5, all the time that Peter was under heavy guard in the jail house, the church prayed for him most strenuously. Now, I'm sure if I asked you to, to put your hand up now, if you think prayer is important, everyone would raise their hand. I thought, I thought someone was going to do it then, he was just scratching his ear. <laughs> and you'd be right. And I'm sure that we all pray ourselves in quiet times. And as part of devotions maybe, sometimes prayer in desperation. Prayer in our personal lives is so important, but so is praying with others. So is praying with others. The early believers were not in their individual homes praying with Peter, for Peter, sorry. They'd gathered together in Mary's house. They gathered together, praying together. Because praying together as a church strengthens our relationship with God and helps us grow closer to him. When we take time to pray with others, we're opening our hearts to him and allowing him to work in our lives. We can also learn from each other as we pray. As we share our prayers with each other, we learn new ways to praise and worship God. In addition, praying together can help us to better understand and apply his words to our lives. When we pray together, we're reminded that we're all part of one body, the body of Christ. We're united by our faith and our prayers can help strengthen that bond together. 
Praying together as a church is also a way of showing our dependence on God and our need for his help and guidance. When we pray together, we're acknowledging we need God's help in our lives. And we can ask for guidance in specific areas, our work lives, our personal relationships. He's always willing to help us if we ask. And he loves it when we come to him in prayer. And praying together helps us to get to know each other better. We can share joys, sorrows with each other, testimonies. We can support each other through challenging times. It allows us to share those burdens. And we can ask for prayer for specific needs from each other. It's a great way of getting support from other members of the church by praying together. We can feel less alone when we pray together. It can give us strength to face those challenges. It gives an opportunity for people of different ages to come together. You know, there's no requirement on, on age. You can be any age and pray together. It's a way for young people to learn. It's a way for older people to pass on faith and knowledge as well. We're declaring our faith to God when we pray together. Our belief that he hears and answers prayer. It's an important thing and something we should all be striving more for. In Chronicles chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, we see the dedication of Solomon's temple. While the whole assembly of Israel was standing there, Solomon prays a prayer dedicating the temple in which he invokes the presence of God. Now, my God, may your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. Now arise, O Lord God, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. May your saints rejoice in your goodness. And of course, he prays that and the presence of God enters with power. You know, when people in church come together, it really does change the atmosphere. We sing it in the song, don't we? Build your kingdom here, change the atmosphere. When we come together to pray, it changes the atmosphere. Worship can be more powerful. And that sense of connection with God grows that perhaps isn't there otherwise. When we pray together, people hear him speak, giving direction and encouragement. The church in Antioch saw this in action. While they were worshipping God and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. During a time of normal prayer and worship, the Holy Spirit gave that crucial direction that forever changed the world by commissioning Saul, sending Saul to his missionary work. E.M. Bounds, who's an American Methodist, he wrote nine books on prayer, said, what the church needs is not better machinery, not new organisations or more novel methods, but men and women whom the Holy Ghost can use. People of prayer, people mighty in prayer. And as we looked at this chapter, Acts 12, it shows that the church is united in prayer and the result of their prayers, God worked a great miracle as they requested. You know, we've been challenged about our corporate prayer life at Junction 10 and that's something that we'll continue to address this year. But did you know there's a prayer meeting here on a Sunday before the service? Yeah, some, some did. There's a group of folk who've started meeting before we have the service on a Sunday from about 10 o'clock to pray for what's going to happen here, to pray for us all as we're here, to pray for those who can't, can't be here. And, you know, it's great to know that they're praying, that 
they've been praying this morning for the team. They've been praying for me before getting up and preaching. And if I'm rehearsing with the band, it's great to know that there's people who are praying for you. Um, because it can be difficult to get out there to pray if you're involved with being up front and, and doing stuff. So it's great to know that their, their support is there. And they'd love to see, I'm sure, more people join them. There were 10 in there this morning. So if you are looking for an opportunity to pray, come about 10 o'clock and make your way to the library and you'll be warmly welcomed. From that as well, then we've got the prayer ministry team. We've got the prayer ministry team here this morning. And so if you're here this morning and you would like prayer for something, please just make your way over to that space there or have a wander down to the front and someone will, um, will, will keep an eye out for you and, and ask how they can pray with you today. So a house of prayer. The second characteristic is faith. Mary's house was a house of faith. We read in verse you have to be careful with the message because it kind of puts verses together. So it's verse 12-ish, if that makes sense. So from verse 12-ish, still shaking his head amazed, he went to Mary's house. The Mary who was John Mark's mother, the house was packed with praying friends. We read that Herod had already murdered James. And I'm sure Mary's house would have been fully aware of this news. But despite this tragedy and apparent setback maybe, they didn't let it impact their faith. They met together to pray in great faith for Peter, who was in jail, even though they knew they risked persecution, perhaps even greater persecution for meeting collectively. And you see a crossover of the characteristics here. As believers, we have the faith in the power of prayer to change situations and circumstances. But then as we pray, and perhaps especially as we pray together, our faith can increase further. Yeah? So... There's that crossover between these characteristics. Read in Hebrews 11, verse 6. And it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. As believers, we're called to live by faith. So the faith is really important, isn't it? We can see from the verse that we just read that, that, that that's so true. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and he rewards them who earnestly seek him. And that's impossible without faith. The verse actually says without faith you can't please God. Or alternatively, the other way to look at it is it takes faith to please God. And living by faith is important and it's not an option but it's a requirement. But what does it mean to live by faith? Well... Living by faith and not by sight means that you're willing to go into the unknown. Yeah? It's trusting God even though you don't know where he's leading or what the outcome will be. Knowing that he's in control and that is where ultimately you'll find peace. And we have to think back to these folks back who were praying. This was all new. Yeah, we've got the benefit of 2,000 odd years of Christian belief and believers meeting and gathering in church and so on. This was all new to them. And they were seeing some of their key people murdered. It would have been a challenge to the faith, I think. Our survival and our success depends on our faith. We read in Romans 1 verse 17. It's through faith that a righteous person has life. What you live by is what you depend on. And what you can't do without. 
Hands up if you depend on oxygen and water. We've got some very odd folk here. If you didn't put your hand up, if you'd like to donate your body to medical science <laughs> at the end of your days, then um, I'm, sure, I'm sure that they'll be uh, most delighted. We all need oxygen and water, don't we? Yeah, we all need oxygen and water. They're things that we can't do without. And in the same way that we can't live without them, God expects us to live by faith. We can't live without it. Our life depends on it. Faith gives us that stability and assurance in difficult times and challenges. It's, a faith, it's faith that makes us strong and stable as we go through life. Our faith determines our ability as well to receive God's promises. So how do we grow in our faith? Well, firstly, we can ask God to increase our faith. If you're struggling this morning with your faith, ask him for more. And he will gladly give it. He's not going to hold it back. He'll gladly give it through the Holy Spirit. If you want to grow in faith, focus on obeying God. None of us are perfect. None of us are perfect. We all make mistakes. But as we focus on following God's words and commands, as we give over our circumstances and situations to him, putting our trust in him, our faith will begin to grow. We can spend time reading and hearing God's word, spend time every day reading his word and meditating on it, listening to it. You know, these days you can listen to a sermon and a podcast while you're doing something else in your headphones or on the speaker. Listen to some worship music maybe, putting his word in your heart because it fortifies our faith, it builds faith to see us through those difficult times. We can spend time in prayer, back to that crossover. Maybe spend, take that moment to schedule time each day with God. It can make an enormous difference. Make time to be alone with him. Chance to discuss things that are on your heart and mind. Things that are troubling maybe. Things that are maybe challenging faith. Be still then and listen. And see how your faith will grow as a result. We can grow faith by being generous. The Bible says even in times of trouble, we're to give. We're in times of trouble financially, aren't we, at the moment? People who maybe were quite comfortable only a few months ago are now feeling the struggle. It seems counterintuitive to, to give at that time. But in giving and blessing someone else, you're blessing yourself too. And it will help grow faith. So that's how we, you can look to grow faith individually maybe. But what about collectively? How do we grow faith collectively? Well, if you're looking at the characteristics of the church at Mary's house, that, that's not, the Mary's house wasn't an individual, that was a collection of people. But faith is definitely something that we hold individually, isn't it? Yeah? And on one level, my faith is personal to me, and yours is personal to you. But that's not to say that my faith can't impact yours, and vice versa, Yeah? My faith can impact yours, your faith can impact mine. And that may be negatively or positively, hopefully. Have you ever been in a situation where you find out someone who'd seemingly been doing great in their Christian life has lost their faith or done something which doesn't match up with the teachings of Jesus? Yeah? Anyone been in that situation? It may not cause us to lose our faith, Although it can, and I did train with a guy who'd left church disillusioned because the vicar had been having an affair with someone in the congregation. 
We may not lose our faith over it, but it can be challenged, can't it? It can be negatively impacted. But alternatively and hopefully, our faith is positively impacted by others and we can positively impact others through our faith as we share testimonies of God's goodness and we, say, and we, we de- demonstrate his love to others. So in terms of growing faith collectively and individually, we need to spend other time, uh, more time with other believers. We're meant to worship together, we're meant to pray together, we're meant to share our faith with others. Hearing about others' journeys in faith can be encouraging. And when times are challenging, or we face persecution like the early believers, we can reach out to others, to friends, to family. One of the best things you can do in those tough times is to draw close to others, to get alongside, to ask for support, for help. Sit down and discuss the situation with them. Let them give you some encouragement, some wisdom, some revelation maybe. Because that connection with others is essential. Having faith means that we're part of the covenant body of believers. A family of brothers and sisters united in Jesus Christ. So to conclude this morning, to bring these couple of thoughts together, as I said, a couple of big themes there which I'm sure weren't as a, come as a surprise to anyone in terms of what um, the characteristics of, of the, Mary's house were and what perhaps we should be looking forward to be if we're to be a community with Jesus at the centre. If we're building a community with Jesus at the centre, he's got to be central to each one of us. But at the centre, along with Jesus, as we read in Ephesians 1, is the church. And if Jesus is central, as the bride of Christ, so the church must also be. Yeah? You following me on that one? We can't separate them. And that's where Peter knew the believers would be, even though identifying as a believer could lead to imprisonment or death. They were committed to meeting together. And we've also looked at a couple of the characteristics of this early church, a house of prayer and a house of faith. A house of prayer that gathered together to pray because they recognised they needed God's intervention. And a house of faith that believed in the power of prayer to change the situation. And as we continue to become a community with Jesus at the centre, those things are things that we should also be recognised for. People should recognise the church at Junction 10 as a, as a house of prayer and a house of faith. And it's my prayer that those things are said about us. If they're not already said about us, that they will be said about us. And we'll pick this up again next week as we look at some of those other characteristics that we can see from Acts chapter 12. So thank you for listening this morning. Um, You've got an excuse now not to come next week because you know I'm preaching, but I hope (laughs) I've clocked everybody who's here. The stewards have made a note, and if you're not here, uh, if you're not going to be here, please give your excuse and reasons on your way out. So uh, no, no, I look forward to bringing the next part to you next week. Thank you for listening this morning.